Isaiah chapter 8, verses 7, 8 and 8 describes a great threat looming for the people of Judah. It says in Isaiah 8, verse 7, The Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates. The king of Assyria, with all his pomp, will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of the land. This great river, this great bird of prey at the end there, this great threat of an expanding militaristic empire, the Assyrian Empire. Around the time of King Solomon, the Assyrian Empire, the once great empire, became strong again. Um, And at the time that uh, then Solomon's kingdom split in two, during the reign of his son Rehoboam, into the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah and Jerusalem, Assyria was more and more something people were reading about in the news, worrying about from afar, asking what are our defence plans and infrastructure investments to guard against this new threat. A couple of centuries before Isaiah, Ashurdan II and Ashurnasirpal II led this recovery, but it was particularly in Isaiah's day, Tiglath-Pileser III, who established Assyria as a mighty empire. And it would go on to be, for the next century, a real powerful force in that part of the world. Back in the start of Isaiah, we read about the four decades of Isaiah's ministry spanning four kings of Judah. You know, this is the prophecies of Isaiah in the reigns of Uzziah, Ahaz, and so on. But it could equally well be said to be that Isaiah also tells the story of Isaiah's four decades of ministry during the four emperors of Assyria. Tiglath-Pileser III, who we'll be focusing on today, Shalmaneser V, Sargon II, and Sennacherib. In this part of Isaiah, it's Tiglath-Pileser III, who's particularly the one um, ruling over these events, sitting in the background of everything that's going on. We're around 735 BC. tiglath III had built, you could call him TP3 for short, couldn't you? That would be his rapper name. Uh, <laughs> TP3 had built the empire. Uh, the way he'd do it is invade other nations and then install a kind of puppet king who'd do what he want. Um, and then he'd get tribute of whatever resources he'd want from the, king, the kingdoms and nations and places he'd, he'd made. And if they then caused trouble and rebelled and said, we don't like this arrangement, he would then pull up the population and disperse them. Because if you have a dispersed population that can't rally around language and religion and family, it's, it's much harder to, to get a revolution going. I covered some of this ground at our Engage conference. And afterwards, this is the kind of a little, um, again, things preachers fret about. I realised that I was gesturing to the West this way, which is my West, which is useless for you, during the whole thing. Afterwards, I went, oh, stupid, that's not, that's their East. So he was interested in the West. <laughs> uh, he'd come down from the North into the West. He was interested in your West, not, yeah. Um, uh, because there's the timbers of Lebanon, great resources. There's sea access, and there's a route into Egypt. And so he's interested in Israel, Judah, the people of Isaiah, the people of God. He was a powerful and capable emperor. The scale and and the power of his empire could be seen. You could even get out your phones and Google now the Mashki Gate, M-A-S-H-K-I, the vast gates um, 
that, that marked his empire. It sadly, was destroyed by ISIS in 2016. But and you get a sense of the scale of, of what it would be like, just even in their architecture, to show the power of their empire. This is the context in which Isaiah is ministering, a grim context, a hopeless, frightening, uncertain context. And so the question all through the book is, who do we trust? What do we do? How can we hope anymore? And having done a bit of a preface in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, now in chapter 6, we kind of get, it, it, maybe at the end of 5, it's the opening credits. And now in chapter 6, we finally get the, uh, the commissioning of Isaiah and the beginning of the, the main chunk of the book. So we'll first look at that, the commissioning of Isaiah in chapter 6. Isaiah's commissioning begins in chapter 6 with the death of a good king. Isaiah 6.1, in the year King Uzziah died. The reign of Uzziah was called by some an Indian summer, a sort of a, a false, short-lived time of strength, stability, security and godly spirituality. Uzziah was a good guy. But like so many kings in Judah, way back then, even the good ones were imperfect and Uzziah died in unfaithfulness and pride, stricken by the Lord, stricken down. So he shared the last 10 years of his reign with his son. And now here's the death of Uzziah, the end of an era, and the end of an era that was already sort of fading. And so while on earth we see the fading of an earthly kingdom, Uzziah's kingdom, suddenly we meet another king. For Isaiah says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, king, high and exalted, a great king, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I saw the Lord, Isaiah says. If you've read the Bible a bit, you'll know that often these prophets, they'll begin their books with something like the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord came to Micah, the word of the Lord came to Amos and so on. Um, but every now and then you get the story, you get the origin story with Moses or Jeremiah or Ezekiel and here Isaiah, you get the what was it like when the word of the Lord came. And it's an amazing vision at the time of death of this fading earthly king. And, and it seems the fading of the earthly dynasty of David and Solomon. We see this great king. Massive, holy. There are, this train of his robe fills the temple. The seraphs, verse 2, each with six wings, two that cover their faces and their feet and the flying and the calling out, holy, 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 verse 3. The, the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory at the sound of the voices, the temples and the... Uh, uh, the, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. I mean, it's massive. It, notice the train of the robe. I mean, maybe you've been to some weddings with some pretty impressive wedding dresses where there's a big train of the dress dragging down the aisle um, up to the front of the church building. Well, here the train of the robe of the Lord is so massive it fills the whole temple. I saw the Lord. Well, I saw the train of his robe. <laughs> That's how vast and majestic he is. And in fact, I couldn't even see that much because it was filled with these fiery seraphs crying out as they flew, declaring that actually his glory fills the whole planet. And then there's thundering and there's smoke and it's this overwhelming vastness. So fair enough that Isaiah's response is verse 5. Woe to me. I'm ruined. 
For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Exactly. You see, the Lord, you see the train of his robe, you see his angels, and you see just how exposed we are as sinful people. See ourselves for, when we see the Lord for who he is, we see ourselves for who we are. A vision of the Lord in the first place, you see, isn't kind of just um, nice and easy and joyful. There's a degree to which it's fearful, too, to get a sense of God's massiveness. But it's not just fearful, verse 6. We get mercy and forgiveness. For one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see... This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. From the altar, the place of sacrifice and atonement and the appeasing of God's wrath and the cleansing of sin, God applies atonement and redemption to Isaiah. The appeasing of God's wrath against him, the cleansing of his sin. It's interesting how for a prophet, lips runs through the whole thing, isn't it? It's not kissing here we're talking about. It's talking. A talking prophet, a teacher painfully aware as he sees the Lord of the sin of his lips. And yet at that very point of the awareness of his sin is also where the atonement comes. You're forgiven. And so you're commissioned. It's a pretty amazing passage. Rightly famous. There's a great little bit in John chapter 12 where the end of this chapter is quoted, the ever-seeing, ever-perceiving bit gets quoted. Um, about the unbelievers in Jesus' day, in Jesus' ministry. They also saw, but they didn't really perceive, and they heard, but they didn't really understand. And, and so this gets quoted. And then John says this little thing. He says, Isaiah said that because he saw the Lord. He saw Jesus' glory, and he spoke about it. John the evangelist says, when Isaiah sees the Lord here, he is seeing God the Son, who would become the man, Jesus Christ. He sees the glory of God the Son, who came to earth as Jesus Christ. That when you see Jesus, hear Jesus, watch him teach and work and live and love and die and rise, you're watching this mighty Lord. Not just send a seraph with a coal, but send himself to the altar for our atonement. And so his sin is atoned for, he takes our guilt away, and then he sends, verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for me? And I said, here I am, send me. It's a fearful question, that one. Who am I going to send? At this point, we get an answer that's quite different to Jeremiah's answer or Moses' answer. When the Lord says, go, I send you, they, they go, ah, oh, sovereign Lord, about that. <laughs> and then try and explain to God how he's got it wrong. I wonder whether in this case, because, um, because Isaiah has already had the woe is me moment, and he's already had the coals to the lips moment, he can now say at this point, yeah, send me. I'll go. Already had his greatest objection met. Look, think about it. Think about it. Put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. Think about yourself. 
all the troubles and fears you have, all your worries and inadequacies and anxieties, surely the biggest one, all your worries, all your fears, all your little um, self-esteem issues that weigh on you and, 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 and stress you, surely the biggest of all of them is, what does God think of me? What does God say behind my back? How does God really think of me? That's the biggest worry of all, surely. And if that gets dealt with, and so I know that God takes the initiative to accept me and to cleanse me and to welcome me and to have me, then while I might struggle with some of the other fears and worries, as no doubt Isaiah did again and again, at the centre of who I am, I know God accepts me. He's okay with me. And so then I can say, yeah, here I am, Lord. Send me. Use me. In this case, Isaiah's commissioning is a pretty grim one. It's not the message in the first place that Christians get of go and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Saviour risen from the dead to all nations, and make disciples and so on. <laughs> this one is dark. Here's his commissioning, verse 9. Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, turn and be healed. It's dark. It's a shocking way of phrasing it. But the idea is, in a sense, go and pronounce people's rebellion against God by sort of saying, go ahead then. Go and say, look, you don't want to listen to God. You don't want to trust God. You don't want to turn and be repentant. Very well then, carry on. The Bible book of Romans talks about God handing people over to their sin. The story of Exodus talks about Pharaoh hardening his heart. So God hardening his heart. Back when I was in high school, I mean, I guess it's a pretty like classic line, but it had a real wave of popularity was, yeah, whatever. If your parents said anything, your teacher said anything, if anyone said anything you didn't want to listen to, yeah, whatever. There was even like a comedy song that was huge on the radio called The United States of Whatever, which is actually pretty funny. You could Google that one, but not now. Um, uh, yeah, whatever. I'm sure teenagers still say that one. Of course, there's an updated version now as well, isn't there? Okay, boomer. But the point with both is sort of like, you know, if you talk, 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 I could, I could speak back to you, but you wouldn't listen. So I just say, yeah, whatever. You know, what's the point? Likewise, when some sort of 55-year-old white guy starts telling you about how he worked really hard to get where he was when he was young, you go, okay, boomer. I mean, I could explain, but whatever. It's a little bit like Isaiah sent with that message. Go and say to Israel, listen. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> what's the point? You're not going to listen anyway. Damning. We saw it in um, Isaiah 28. You think God's word is blah, 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 blah. Well, very well. God's going to say to you, blah, 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 blah. Because you're not listening anyway. Jesus uses this to talk about his parables. That he comes teaching, but in a hidden way. So those who are curious will come and find out more. And those who don't want to believe will just say, Ugh, they're just stories. I don't get it. How long for? Isaiah says, this is dark. This is grim. How long for, O Lord? Verse 11. Until the end of the line, the Lord says. 
verse 11, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged. Until the Lord has sent everyone away and the land is utterly forsaken to the very end of the line. And <laughs> that end of the line isn't the end. Get out and walk because things go from worse to worser. Verse 13. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. <coughs> things are going to get bad, God says to Isaiah. And then things are going to get worse, God says to Isaiah. But all hope is not lost. Verse 13. So that very last sentence of the chapter. As the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. There's a stump from which something will grow. There is something left from which new life will come. In God's time, in God's purposes, in Isaiah's day and in our day, things aren't always blessing from blessing to blessing, from strength to strength. Things aren't always happiness and joy and success. Look, they may be, and actually for your lifetime, I hope they are. I hope you just get from blessing to blessing, from strength to strength, from joy to joy. That can happen. Maybe for a long time. Things aren't always, in every age, definitely and absolutely as terrible as they were at this point in Isaiah's day. <laughs> you know that. But things aren't always definitely and absolutely good, and from good to better, and from better to better, either. Things can go from bad to worse and worse to worser. Things can get really bad. Things have. Things could. And yet, like in Isaiah's day, all hope is never lost with God's purposes, with God's promises. What God says to Isaiah in his commissioning is true through his whole life and ministry including what we'll look at in these next couple of chapters, his encounters with Ahaz in the time of TP3. <laughs> so let's turn to that in chapter 7 then, where we get this intrigue, this bit of political drama. It's Israel and Aram versus Judah versus Assyria. That's what we get here. So around 735 BC, in this little bit, um, the big threat is Assyria. Remember we talked about Tiglath-Pileser III. And all these nations around Ahaz and Isaiah, they're stressing out and they're trying to figure out what to do. And so Israel, the northern kingdom, forms an alliance with another nation, Aram. And they team up to try and attack Judah. Stick with me. So verses 1 and 2, 7 verses 1 and 2. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem but they couldn't overpower it. Now the house of David was told Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and the people were shaken as trees in the forest are shaken by the wind. The plan gets explained a little bit later on in verses 5 and 6. It seems they have a plan to get somebody else, this, um, the son of Tabil, to become king in Judah, probably so that he will then partner up them and so then they'll be more mighty to fight back against Assyria. That seems to be the idea. 
you're not joining us, Ahaz, so we'll kick you out, get a king that we like, and then we'll all team up, and then we stand a chance. That's the kind of intrigue that's going on here. And so we have this Aram-Israel, what some historians call the Syro-Ephraimite crisis. (laughs) So what to do? Hearts shaking like trees in a great wind. What to do? Well, Isaiah's message to Ahaz and to the people is trust God, not some human nation strength plan plot thing. Trust God. Isaiah comes out to meet Ahaz, verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son Shear to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field and say to him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, don't lose heart because of the two smouldering stubs of firewood. Because the fierce anger of Rezan and Aram and the sons of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let's invade Judah, let's tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It won't take place, it won't happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Rezan. Within 65 years, Ephraim too will be shattered people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you don't stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. Compared to God, these guys are mere mortals. Unless God wills it, it's not going to happen. Their purposes will come to nothing. Trust God. Don't fear people. Don't surrender to them. Don't panic. Don't compromise yourself when you shouldn't. In other words, alliances aren't always bad. It's not like it's always bad. But in this context, when it is an expression of doubting God rather than trusting God and waiting patiently, when it's listening to the threats of human rulers rather than listening to the promises of God, in that context, this alliance is an expression of lack of faith. It's a a hard word. And so the Lord offers a sign to kind of rub it in. Verses 10 to 12. Uh, Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. Ahaz says, I will not. I will not put the Lord to the test. The Lord offers a sign to strengthen and confirm Ahaz in this faithful, patient course of action. And it seems like Ahaz does a right thing, right? Sounds kind of good, doesn't it? Sounds similar to stuff Jesus says. Don't test the Lord. And you go, oh, yeah, cool, right on, Ahaz. You passed the test. That's what, at first reading, it seems right. Asking a sign can be a mark of doubt or cowardice or unbelief. And yet here, the Lord rebukes him, verse 13. The Lord says, uh, through Isaiah, Hear now, you house of David. Is it enough, not enough, to try the patience of human beings? Will you try the patience of my God also? What's going on? Everything else we know of Ahaz is not a trusting, believing, pious person. <laughs> Everything else we know of him is he's not one who's interested in trusting the Lord and his promises. That here, him saying, oh, I won't trouble the Lord with a sign is instead false piety. It's a show. It's like, oh, if I, if I kind of play pious, will Isaiah go away? I don't want to listen to him anyway, so let's not make this more embarrassing for the both of us. Is it? He's not wanting to be put in a corner with more reasons to follow this difficult course of action. And so just like Jesus often in his ministry exposes the real motives of people, so the Lord through Isaiah here says, come on, mate, 
You're not going to ask for a sign to confirm your faith? Then I'll give you a sign. Oh, a strange sign. Verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll call him Emmanuel. It's a strange one, this one. It's not necessarily a miracle that's being promised here, because virgin, the word used here could just mean uh, a young woman, a maiden, will have a child. Um, it's not necessarily a proof that God is powerful and could do miracles, so trust God because he can do miracles. Not so much a sign as a proof kind of thing, but rather a sign is now an instruction, a teaching. It's now saying, well, you weren't going to ask for confirmation and strengthening of your faith? Well, God's going to tell you what's going to happen. He's going to teach you now about the future that's coming your way, whether you like it or not, Ahaz. It's a teaching sign, a teaching aid. So what does it teach? A lady having a kid. What's it teach? A maiden having a kid. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land, two kings you dread, will be laid waste. It's a time sign. It's a, look, we're going to set the timer. I don't know if your parents did this with like screens or TV or stuff like that, where they'd set the timer for you and say, look, when that buzzes, time for you to finish up or something like that. Or, you know, set your timer for your, your egg to make sure it doesn't get overcooked if you like it, just a bit runny in the middle for your soldier toasts, dip in it. Um, it's, it's a timer here. The kid themselves is a timer. This kid's going to get born, and as you watch the kid grow up, and you watch the kid begin to know, no, don't do that, that's naughty, don't talk that way, that's rude. As the kid begins to know right and wrong, buzz, the land will be laid waste. Before the kid has grown up, Aram and Israel will be no more. These threats, local threats, will be no more. He won't remember the threat and shaking hearts like trees in the wind. It'll all be history he'll read about later. But it's also a warning to Ahaz because before the kid has grown up and knows right and wrong, Assyria, whom Ahaz was tempted to trust in as well, will also come on Judah. Verse 17, the Lord will bring on you and your people and the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He'll bring the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for flies from the Nile Delta in Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. They'll all come and settle in the steep ravines and the crevice and the rocks and the thorn bushes and all the water holes. And in that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and the hair of your legs and take off your beards also. In other words, this kid tells you that soon enough, Aram and Israel will be no more. Don't worry about them. And soon enough, Assyria will come. And yet, God will preserve his people. Through it all, through the bad to the worst, the worst to the worst. Verse 21. In that day, a person will keep alive a young cow and two goats. And because of the abundance of the milk they give, there'll be curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, in every place where there'll be a thousand vines worth a thousand silver shekels, there'll be only briars and thorns. Hunters will go there with bow and arrow, for the land will be covered with briars and thorns. As for all the hills once cultivated by the hoe, they'll no longer uh, go there for fear of the briars and the thorns. They'll become a place where cattle are turned loose and where sheeps, sheep, sheeps, <laughs> sheep, uh, sheep run. Uh, that was a funny laugh. 
the other day, someone posted on Facebook um, something that made me smile, uh, reflecting on how the, uh, the pandemic will one day be over. And uh, see if I can find it on my little profile here. Um, Ten years from now, you'll put on a jacket and find a mask in the pocket. Huh. Oh, man, what a weird year that was, you'll chuckle to yourself. Then you'll pick up your machete and continue across the wasteland, keeping to the shadows to avoid, <laughs> to avoid the roving gangs of cannibal raiders. <laughs> That's a bit like what's going on here. It's an interesting, ironic little end to the chapter. There are marks of plenty here. Curds and honey. The land of milk and honey was the promised land, wasn't it? The land of blessing. Yeah. Ah, oh, the mask is a thing of the past. We're enjoying blessing, surely. But then you zoom back and you go, oh, yeah, there's curds and honey, wild honey and curds from wild goats. And you can go wherever you like because everything's in ruins. <laughs> It's a little bit like saying, ah, Tasmania, fresh oysters and apples and cheese and wine and preserves. Ah, lovely. Because civilization has fallen and you can pick grapes from any of the abandoned vineyards in the zombie wasteland that you like. And you'll have to pull oysters off the rocks because there's nothing else to eat (laughs) and so on. It's this interesting irony. God will preserve a remnant. They'll still enjoy his blessing. It's still the land of milk and honey, but in a grim season. God will preserve a remnant in a green season. For through it all, Isaiah says, God is with us. In chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, children are born. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with ordinary pen, Maha Shalal Hashbaz. So I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah, son of Jeberachiah, uh, as reliable witnesses for me. And then I made love to the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Mahal Shahal Hashbaz. Before the boy knows how to say my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. So the maiden gives birth to a child. Not called Emmanuel, literally, any more than Jesus got called Emmanuel, literally, uh, many years later. But rather, Mahal Shahal Hashbaz, quick to... Plunder, swift to spoil, as we get in our little footnote there in our Bibles. Or as a paraphrased translation by J.B. Phillips puts it, quick pickings, easy prey. (laughs) Depressing name. A sign of this judgment that's coming. And a reminder of preservation through the judgment. Before this kid grows up, Assyria will sweep through. And so we get those words that we read at the start about this great river coming through and overflowing the banks in 6, 7 and 8 of chapter 8. Assyria will come and sweep through. It'll wash away Aram and wash away uh, Israel and come right up to the chin for Judah, but not totally sweep them away. And ultimately, the river will recede and Assyria itself will come to nothing, verse 9. Raise the wall, choir, ye nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but you will not stand. For God is with us. Aram and Israel won't last. Assyria won't last. Judah will come to the brink, but God will preserve his people, his Emmanuel. God will be with them through it all.
And in this way, Isaiah's kids are signs of what's to come. Verse 18. Here am I, Isaiah says, and the children the Lord has given me. Quick pickings, easy prey. And uh, there was another child got mentioned back in chapter 7 as well when he went and met Ahaz, Shear Jashub, which means a remnant will return. His, his kids are signs of what's to come. Quick pickings, easy prey. Marks the threat of Assyria. Shia Jashub in 7 verse 3, meaning a return of the remnant, God will preserve a remnant for his people. Like the hut in the cucumber patch of chapter 1. If we had to summarise all this, we could say God's timetable runs longer. God's purposes span a longer time than our immediate worries and hopes. And God's timetable is more mysterious than our simple cause and effects, our simple superstitions. Better in the end to trust the Lord. Don't be like Ahaz. Don't listen, listen to Isaiah instead. God will be with his faithful people in the midst of this terrible dread and trouble and worry. Verse 11, this is what the Lord says to me, 8 verse 11. His strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Don't call conspiracy everything this people call conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear. Don't dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both houses of Israel. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes people fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he'll be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble and they'll fall and be broken. They'll snare and be captured. But you guys, bind up this testimony of warning. Seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Don't fear false promises, morally compromising alliances, false religion and superstition, as we get in verses 19 to 22. Trust the Lord. Be a child of God's promise, pledged to God's word. Because in the end, the child will be born, the greater child. And that's the cool thing, that... The promise of 714 of a child to be born who'll be a, a sign and a symbol gets picked up and fulfilled in an even greater way in chapter 9. Where in chapter 9 we get told in verse 6 that a child will be born and a son will be given and the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace and of the increase of his government and peace there'll be no end and he'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. That's not Shedashub, that's not Mahal, Shalal, Hashbaz. <laughs> that's not Hezekiah or Uzziah or... That's when... The maiden will be born. In fact, a virgin literally will give birth to a son. As Mary gives birth to the Lord Jesus, the mighty God, wonderful counsellor, everlasting father, prince of peace, the great king, the great saviour, the hope forevermore. God will save us from our sins. God will preserve us in the midst of trouble and sin and strife and turmoil and the rising and falling of nations. He'll preserve a people. His salvation is not a military protection or a political victory or an agricultural prosperity. His salvation is from sin, from the judgment of God, is the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Your sin is atoned for. 
your guilt is taken away. And as the floodwaters of the Jewish leaders and the Roman Empire swept up to Jesus' neck over his head and the razor of sin and death and the world and the devil shaved his head, brought him low, he conquered. Through death, through the wrath of God, he triumphed. And he is the king, the Lord, high and exalted. He is the sure hope in times of so much despair and uncertainty and difficulty. How exciting is that, huh? Let's pray. Our Lord, God Almighty, high and exalted. Our Father. Our Saviour. Our God. Forgive us our unclean lips, our unclean thoughts our unclean hands. Atone for our sin and send us to serve you. Thank you. We just praise you as we we look at, at your working your ways in history, at the patterns of prophecies that find their fulfilment ultimately in Jesus. This all strengthens our faith. And reminds us that in your long timetable, in your mysterious purposes, in your sure promises, is the place we should rest and trust. Enable us to rest and trust in your promises, we ask, and to go and speak of your glory and your salvation. Preserve us through hard times and bless us in the middle of it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.